So I'm 45, and my eyes have started to go off. And uh, I once jumped out of the shower in the morning screaming because I thought my own armpit hair was, in fact, a spider. And uh, there were some mornings when I come to read the Bible and maybe even read it out aloud in church, and I struggle because it's just a little bit blurry. So imagine, instead of getting my prescription adjusted, if I just made up what I thought this should say instead, the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to me. Where would that take us, do you think? That's the story of the book of Judges, and that is the story of the contemporary church in the United States as well. A survey published last year in the Christian Post found that only half of American Christians, not the population, but the Christians within it, believe that the Bible is inspired by God. Even fewer believe this is the word of the Lord. That's a minority Christian view in this land. 60% of Christians in America believe the Bible has errors within it. 30% of Christians in America believe large parts are entirely made up by men to oppress us. Can you guess which bits they say are wrong? Yeah, that's right. It's the bits they don't like, the bits that don't look right to them. What happens, do you think, when people start to do what is right in their own eyes instead of God's? That's the big question of the book of Judges. At least that's the angle we're taking for chapter 10. Judges 10, verse 6. The people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, and it's just worth pausing for a moment to recognize right here, they didn't try to. They weren't trying to do the wrong thing. They didn't wake up and say to themselves, what stupid stuff can we do today? What's the most evil thing we could do, do you think, to harm ourselves or hurt our children or ruin our nation? Let's go and do that. They were not trying to do evil. They were trying to do right, at least insofar as it looked right in their own eyes. Their problem was not blindness, it was blurriness. That was the issue. So they took their eyes off the Lord. It was too hard to kind of focus. They took their eyes off God, and they looked to the more visible things around them, namely the behavior of their neighbors. They just copied whatever it was that anyone else was doing in the culture of the day. Whatever culture said was good, whatever their neighbors said was good, they just went ahead and did that thing until... What God said was good started to look bad to them in their eyes. Still in verse 6, we read, They served the Baals and the Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Seven gods listed here, all from their neighbors, all around them. But you know what? There's one neighbor missing from this list. This is a side point. It's just interesting to me. It's an indulgence. Uh, forgive me. But there's no mention of Edom. And Edom was a neighbor. We know this because in the book of Numbers, we read that the Edomites did not allow the Israelites to cross their territory on the way to the promised land. So we know that Edom is nearby. Why take on every god of every culture all around you with the exception of Edom, do you think? Well, uh, some scholars believe that the God of Edom was so evil 
that even Israel could see that one was bad. Like, you know, we draw the line at Edom. That's really horrible. Uh, others believe, actually, the opposite, that uh, the God of Edom was more or less the same God as the God of Israel, and they thought, well, why bother taking that one on when we already have it? Both good scholarly ideas. I've got another one. It's just an idea. Take it with a pinch of salt. Edom was family. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and Esau, a.k.a. Israel and Edom, and they fell out. Throughout the Old Testament, there's all these stories of fights between Israel and, and Edom, these two nations, even though Deuteronomy 23 says, you shall not hate an Edomite, for he is your brother. It's like they looked around the entire ancient Near East with blurry vision, and they all agreed, here's something we're not going to do. We are not going to be like our family. That's a funny thing, is it not? It seems they were willing to take on pretty much any idea at all from any of the prevailing cultures of the day except for their family. Now, this is not my main point, but it has been a theme of the series so far, this idea of influencing your children or even your children influencing you for the gospel. And I just want to say that if you are trying to influence your family for God, if there's any kind of baggage there, any kind of unforgiveness, any old sin undealt with between you, you're not going to get anywhere until you confess that. That's got to be healed first. They don't want to hear it otherwise. So back to the main point. They, they, they take on the false gods of all of these neighbors except for Edom. That's kind of interesting. But they take on all of these gods. And I think they're doing this because it appears to them that the practices of all these nations around them are quite sincere. They think that the people around them are, you know, doing their best. It seems right in their own eyes. They're not trying to do evil. They're trying to do the right thing. And maybe they even believe that by adding in these things, they could maybe influence those cultures more by being more similar to them. Or maybe they felt they could add to their holiness in some way by, by taking on more religions. Let's add them in. Let's do all of them, shall we? Let's coexist. That will make us holier. But from God's perspective, who can see things perfectly, they were in fact casting him out. They weren't bringing things in. They were driving him out. It says here, they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. To forsake in Hebrew means to leave alone or depart from, to let loose, abandon or apostatize. They denied the Lord by serving other gods. So verse 7, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel. God does not abandon them. He judges them. He brings a crisis upon them until he gets their attention again, and he has their eyes fixed on him. Just like I need a larger print Bible in the morning and every three years it gets a font size larger. Sometimes a, a crisis in your life can function like God's big print. It will get your attention. You will see it. Now, that is not a flippant remark. If you are suffering with something, particularly a long thing, I'm not taking that lightly. Uh, writing after the death of his wife, C.S. Lewis once observed, pain is like God's megaphone. 
It is God's big print. He said, we can ignore pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. More of a, a visual image now. And it plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. God, as a last resort, not abandoned them. He's judging them. He's bringing a crisis upon them because it's all they can see. And now he's got their attention. Verse 10 says, The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We've sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. This is true. But Ben believes, and he says so on the podcast, and I think he's correct, they're just saying it. They're just saying sorry. A bit like your kids will say sorry long before they feel it, because they know the word works. Last night, my Ben told me a story. He said I could share it with you. He said that he and his friend got caught at school running in the library, and that his friend was banned from the library for the rest of the year, but he got away with it completely. Do you know what Ben did? He looked the librarian in the eye and said, Ma'am, I know what we did was wrong, and I'm really sorry. And the librarian turned to his friend and said, Do you have anything to say? You know what his friend said? Nope. <laughs> I guess he just felt Ben had covered it for him. Like, that was a pretty thorough defense. The moral of the story, if you are trying to talk yourself out of trouble, don't just say nope. Here's their problem, however, the Israelites' problem. God is not a librarian. He doesn't say, oh, the little darlings, they're so contrite. Oh, butter wouldn't melt in their mouth. I'll let them off. They, uh, they said the right words. He can see their hearts. He knows it's just a wheeze. He knows they're just saying it. And he says to them in verse 11, hang on a minute, I paraphrase, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines and from the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites? Seven deliverances to mirror the seven apostasies of the seven false gods. Which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Seven. Perfect number. Symbolic of perfection, symbolic of completion, of totality. You, God says, have been totally evil, and yet I have been totally gracious. Some people are going to say to me, they say it all the time, I'm too evil to be saved by God. I've done too much. I'm too far gone. That is the kind of idea you will get in your head when you stop reading this. Nowhere in Scripture will you find an idea like that. That's not what God says at all. But he does say it first. I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. He sees that they don't really mean it when they say sorry. So God pushes back just a little bit at this point. And again in verse 15, the people say, we've sinned. But then something changes and we're told they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And that's the difference. They didn't just say sorry. They were sorry. And it showed. It was demonstrated by the fact that things changed. Now, this is not a work 
that they do. It's not a thing that they do to placate or to imprecate God and get him back on side. This is not a manipulation of God in the way that through ritual you could manipulate Baal and all of the rest. There are no hoops to jump through in order to get God on your side, in order to make God be nice to you. That's another of those ideas you will get when you take your eyes off this. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, here's the three things you have to do to make God be nice. You won't find that in there. It's a long book. It doesn't say that. But it's what everyone else around us believes. We have to do this thing, make it up, and then God will let me in. So this turnaround, this throwing away of the false gods that they've accumulated, it's not a work to get God on their side. It is, in fact, a genuine demonstration of penitent hearts. That's what it is. When you love God, you don't need the false gods, so you throw them away. Here's the good news. You can be totally evil and yet be totally saved. You might have accumulated for yourself an entire pantheon of false gods from everyone around you, and yet you can be delivered from them. God approaches us in our evil. God doesn't wait for us to be clean before he talks to us, but he invades our evil. He stands in the midst of it. This is the good news. You don't have to get good first in order to make God good second doesn't work that way. Now, we call this doctrine provenient grace because God's grace precedes us, precedes our penitence or anything for that matter. And by his grace, God reveals to us that which we cannot see for ourselves through our own eyes. And then he saves us from ourselves as well. All we've got is a room full of junk and false gods, but God stands in the midst of it and saves us from it again and again and again. Now, they will mess it up again, of course. In fact, they already have. It's very hard to see. It's very subtle, but it's there. If you look closely, look at verse 17. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped at Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. They're about to have a battle. So what do they ask? Verse 18. Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? Who cares? God has saved them over and over again. God has saved them a perfect number of times from a perfect mess. And here they are looking for a man. They obviously do not know their early 2000s pop, do they? I don't need a man to make it happen. That's uh, Nicole Scherzinger. And the Pussycat Dolls are obviously not listening to the dolls. More fool them. They're still looking around with blurry eyes, I think, and saying, you know, what does everyone else do? Let's do that. And what they say is, just like everyone else, we need to find a champion for ourselves. We need to find someone who looks right in our own eyes to save us. They're holding out for a hero. He's got to be strong, and he's got to be fast, and he's got to be fresh from the fight. A little bit of music for everyone. You're not into the Pussycat Dolls, Mr. Fire? Not your son. Yeah, I am too, you know, I'm too old. <laughs> Even here, there's a glimmer of hope. It's probably a little bit more subtle even than the sin, actually, if we're going to be honest. We are down to like three-point font right now 
as we try and look for the hope, but it's there. You see in verse 16, it says, The Lord became impatient over the misery of Israel. I don't think that means he became impatient with them. Because that would require a change in his immutable properties. And we just saw that his grace is provenient. That is to say, it precedes our sin. And uh, we just also said in the psalm appointed for today that his love is steadfast. The chesed, or steadfast love of God, is completely unchanging. God is not impatient with us. He's impatient for us, desperate, if we may speak of God in such a way. Desperate for our salvation. That means very soon he will intervene. He'll break this cycle of sin that we find ourselves in once and for all. Step right into the midst of it for us. Ironically, it turns out Ben's friend in the library was actually onto something. It turns out someone else can, in fact, speak for you. And when asked if you have anything to add, Nope is actually a very, very good answer, it turns out. But ironically, it also turns out we do need a man to save us. One thing we can be sure about, though, is the hero will not look right in our eyes. He will heal. Well, that's not what you're looking for when you're being oppressed, is it? Heal nations, that sounds nice. He will offend Now, that's not what you're looking for, is it? When you're trying to sort of build yourselves up, someone coming and being offensive to you, he will completely upend the world, this healer who offends. And then he will take on all of our sin, the totality of it, and of course die soaked in it, and then rise on our behalf as well. And having borne our judgment for us in full on the cross, he will return to judge all of those who still have a plan to save themselves. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your marvelous patience with us. And we thank you for showing us in the book of Judges essentially the same story over and over and over again for 300 years because that's our story, Lord, and it's been going on since the beginning. We pray, therefore, Lord, that this would be a time of of sorry, a time of of throwing away the old gods and a time of penitence and a time of grace. And Lord, because your grace is provenient, would you step in and reveal to us that which we cannot see from our perspective? Sharpen our eyes, soften our hearts, and turn us back to you again, we ask.